Our sermon this morning is on the Abrahamic Covenant. We'll be in Genesis chapter 12, but also 15 and 17. So kind of just keep your, keep your finger on those several uh, portions of, of Scripture. Genesis can, can largely, largely be divided into two big sections. There's primeval history, Genesis 1 through 11, and then patriarchal history in Genesis 12 through, through 50. So primeval history is where we came from, origin stories... Creation, Garden, Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, Noah, the Flood, the Tower of Babel. This is uh, primeval history in Scripture. And patriarchal history is the history of the patriarchs, most notably Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also Jacob's uh, sons and just the different stories and things that unfold in their, in their lives. So we're starting this morning, and for the next probably 10 weeks or so, uh, we'll be in the patriarchal uh, history portion of, of Genesis. Abraham, specifically, is who we're looking at today. We're gonna it's, we'll almost expand the story over the over the next few weeks. We'll look at Abraham today, and specifically God's covenant with Abraham. Then we'll look at Abraham and Sarah uh, next week, and kind of some of their uh, some some of what what happened uh, in their life and in their relationship, some of the missteps and things like that. Then we'll look at Abraham and Sarah, but also looking at uh, Hagar and uh, Ishmael. Uh, and, and Isaac, and kind of look at their their story, um, and then we'll look at uh, specifically Abraham and Isaac, and and uh, the story of God calling Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. So that's the next few weeks that we're going to take a look at. Abraham, though, is just a profoundly important character in in the Bible, right? Uh, meeting Abraham, knowing Abraham, understanding Abraham is kind of the key to, to understanding the rest of, of the Bible. It helps us understand God's plans, God's vision, God's intentions. It sets the stage for everything that comes after it. Most notably, the Messiah, the Savior of God's people, who himself is a fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. The Messiah is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. So, so uh, everyone essentially in the Bible kind of looks back to Abraham as their as their, their father. I mean, they, they ultimately look back to Noah or back to uh, Adam as kind of their genetic father that, that they come from. But more often than not, when people in the Bible are talking about their, their forefathers and the faith of their fathers, they're talking about uh, Abraham, right? Song, uh, Father Abraham has many sons, many sons, right? Father Abraham. Like, when, when you look at the New Testament, uh, a lot of it goes back, like, uh, the genealogy in the book of Matthew goes back to Abraham as kind of the, the forefather of, of Christ. When John the Baptist is preaching and he's calling people to repentance and they don't like it because they don't want to repent, they kind of roll their eyes and they basically say, we are sons of Abraham. We don't want to uh, repent like this guy says. And, of course, uh, John the Baptist famously says, God could raise up from these stones, you know, children of, of Abraham. So don't, don't kind of rest in your your lineage. But people are looking at, same with Jesus, right? Jesus is, is preaching and he, he, you know, calls people to repent of their, their sin, calls them to trust in, in him. And they say, we don't have to do that because uh, we are, they're like, you don't even know who your father is, Jesus, but we are sons of Abraham. We, we don't need you to set us free. We've never been enslaved because we are descendants of Abraham. Everyone is looking to Abraham, pointing to Abraham. He is kind of our first, like the original first dude, guy, father that we look to. I mean, even, even today, there, uh, you know, several world religions uh, look, to, look to Abraham as their, their father, as kind of their, their originator. Christianity, 
Judaism and Islam are kind of the big three that, that kind of look to Abraham. They're, they're the Abrahamic religions. They look to Abraham. But there's a bunch of other ones, smaller ones, newer ones, that all kind of say Abraham is our father. So he's this pivotal figure. If you, uh, if you read through the New Testament, uh, Abraham is mentioned all over the place. Uh, Romans 4, Paul dedicates an entire chapter to Abraham, looks at the faith of Abraham, uh, you, know, it, you know, kind of exposits how Abraham was saved by faith and not by works or by religion or by adherence to the law or anything like, like that. He says, rather, Abraham trusted in the promises of God and God credited Abraham. He, he imputed Abraham with, with righteousness because of his his faith. So Abraham is this like central figure, the forefather, the original father of God's people, um, and he's also the, the, a prototypical example of saving faith. What it looks like to look away from yourself and away from your works and away from what you've accomplished, and look instead to the promises of God and the the mercy of God. So. We'll take a look at, uh, at Genesis chapter 12. God kind of makes these initial promises to Abraham. In Genesis 15, those promises are reiterated, and then they are uh, enshrined into a covenant, a formal covenant um, that God makes with Abraham. And then in Genesis 17, the same promises are reiterated again, uh, but this time the, the, the covenant ritual of circumcision is added to, to the, the covenant as, as well. So... That's going to be what we take a look at today. I'm going to start by reading Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Then we'll pray and we'll just uh, we'll get going. It says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we know that your word is powerful, that it's living and active, that you use it to shape your people. We pray, Lord, that you would use it to that end in us this morning. We pray that you would use your word to convict us of sin so that we can repent. Use your word to encourage us of your grace so that we can trust and rest. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so the big, the, the big promises of the Abrahamic covenant are all essentially packed in right here. Genesis 12, 1 through three, God promises Abraham that he will make him a great nation and that he will bless him and that through Abraham he is going to bless the entire world. That's the crux of the Abrahamic covenant. Nation, blessing, and then blessing for the world through, through you. Now, what's interesting though, when you look at Abraham, is uh, similar, to, similar to what we saw with, uh, with Noah. When we looked at the story of Noah, what we saw is that it was, Noah was kind of being fashioned as a a second Adam, or, or a kind of a, a reiteration of who Adam was. It was almost like the story of the flood was, was uh, this decreation followed by recreation, followed by God's called man, person, Noah, who is kind of then uh, tasked with fulfilling God's purposes in, in the world. And interestingly, that is the same kind of 
thing that we see with, with Abraham. We, can, we see elements of decreation, elements of recreation, and then God's one man that he calls to be the patriarch and the father of his people and to accomplish his purposes in, in the, the world. So Noah is kind of looks like a looks like a second Adam. Abraham looks like another version of. I mean, before Abraham comes, uh, things are not good in the world, right? Uh, it's it's just after the Tower of Babel, and everyone has been scattered, and everyone has been confused, and everyone is speaking different languages, and this confusion and this language barrier are causing people to retreat within themselves. This is my tribe. This is my people. You know, and there's warring and, and kind of you know, fighting, infighting against these different clans. People are not collaborating. They're, they're building cities, building walls, protecting themselves. Everyone's worshiping their own gods, false gods. The, the, the world is a mess, and the world is, uh, is, is chaos, which is similar to how the world looked uh, in Genesis chapter 1 before God ordered it and fashioned it how he wanted it. The world was chaotic. It was formless and void. And, and in Genesis 1, God calls... Uh, the world and calls Adam into existence out of non-existence. He brings order out of chaos and existence out of non-existence, which is exactly what God does with Abraham, right? The, the calling of Abraham represents God bringing order out of chaos, and in a very real sense, it was God bringing Abraham into existence out of non-existence. Uh, Romans chapter 4, verses 16 through 17, uh, Paul says, Abraham is the father of us all. Uh, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed. He gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that did not exist. So Paul, when he's speaking of Abraham, he kind of mentions or references or gives this literary allusion or clue to say that just like in Genesis 1, God called existence out of non-existence and order out of chaos the same thing is happening when God calls Abraham. There's been this, this uh, you know, recurring theme. You know, God, God creates the world, and God creates Adam and calls Adam to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and exercise dominion. That's Genesis 1. Adam fails, so at the flood, God decreates and then recreates and then calls Noah to do the exact same thing. Multiply, be fruitful, fill the earth. Noah fails, things fall into disarray again. Humanity bands together in rebellion against God, builds this tower of defiance. God confuses them, scatters them into chaos, and then, calls, and then God calls Abraham to kind of begin anew and to kind of live out God's purposes in this new creation, as it, as it were. Uh, the theologian N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, At key moments, the narrative quietly makes the point that Abraham and his family inherit in a measure the role of Adam and Eve, with subtle differences. The command to be fruitful has turned into a promise, I will make you fruitful. Possession of the land of Canaan has taken the place of dominion over nature. Nevertheless, we could sum up this aspect of Genesis by saying this, that Abraham's children are God's true humanity, and their homeland is the new, the new Eden. So there's this kind of uh, Genesis 1 kind of creation and, and Adamic kind of nature to Abraham and his ministry and his uh, calling. God speaks to him, calls him specifically to leave your home, leave your country, and leave your family. Let's go back to Genesis 12. Which is exactly, you know, this, this call of, um, uh, yeah, there we go, 
or back to Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The, the idea of God calling Abraham to leave his country, leave his family, and to kind of go to a place where I will show you is exactly what God does when he calls people to uh, himself, right? Uh, Abraham does not, you know, Abraham is living in a, in a land of, he's living in Ur of the Chaldeans, which is Babylon. Abraham was a Babylonian. And he worshipped false gods. We'll see that in Joshua chapter 24, uh, verse 2. So Abraham is not, uh, you know, this, this perfect man or this perfect representation of godliness when Abraham calls him, when God calls him. God calls him out of his sin, out of the, the mess that he has made of his, of his life. Which is illustrative and it's instructive for us, right? Jesus, Jesus doesn't call people to himself uh, who have their lives perfectly in order. Jesus calls sinners to himself. It's not the, the righteous that need a savior. It's sinners. It's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the, the sick. Jesus is the friend of, of sinners and the savior for sinners. That's exactly who Abraham was. He was a, a sinner, a pagan, an idolater. God comes to him. God calls him out of the home where he is. He calls him out of his family. says, I want you to leave your life, leave your family, stop living here, stop worshiping idols, stop throwing yourself into unrepentant sin, and instead come with me, follow me, obey me, and, and listen to me. Right? Leave your former way of life. Leave, leave the, the idols that you're worshiping. Come and follow me. And then look specifically, let's go back one, one slide, Jesse, to the one that's just verses 1 through 3. There we go. So specifically, not go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll... To, yeah, not just, not just leave there, but leave there and follow me to the land that I will show you. So God uh, calls Abraham, but does not give him all of the... Right, all of the information... Right? It's not like, come with me, follow me to this place in Canaan, and here are the directions of how to get there. It's come with me and follow me, and I'm going to guide you step by step on, right? It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I'm not going to tell you how far the turn is. This is like whenever me and Jerry are driving, she's like, just go, I'll tell you when to turn. And I'm always like, uh, like why don't you tell me like, how many miles it is? I'll look at the odometer and I'll just kind of keep track of it in my head in case you fall asleep or something like that. She's never missed it once, by the way. She always says, I'll tell you when to turn, and she does. But I'm just kind of a, like I get a little, a little tense. Right, go, go from your, your country, your father's house, to the land that I, you know, will show you. If you're like me, you are totally fine with obeying, totally fine with, you know, uh, going with, with, you know, Happy to oblige if someone needs something, provided that you get all the information that you want first, right, prior to it happening. Right? Can you, can you help me move on Saturday? Well, I probably, but let's, I have, like, I have you know, what, what, time are we, what time are we meeting? When, when does it start? When does it end? How much stuff do you have? Do you, you know, what kind of furniture do you have? How heavy is it? What, do you have a piano? Is it, <laughs> is it an upright piano or a grand piano, right? Do you have... Do you have stuff that's breakable? Do you have insurance? Is this going to come back on me? Are you buying us pizza, beer? What brand? How much of it are you getting, right? Like, I want all of the information about where I'm going and what I'm doing before I agree to, to do it. My mom said that I used to do that when I, was, when I was a kid. She'd be like, get in the car, Ben. We have to go run some errands. And I'd be like, well, what, where are we going? Who's going to be there? How long are we going to be there? What are we going to do when we get there? Do those people have kids? Can I play with them? Can I bring laser, you know, laser tag, whatever? Like, I, I needed to know all this information. She's like, you're five. Get in the car. We're going to, we're going to, the, to the store to, to, do, to do whatever, right? When God calls his people, it's not always, 
Ben, I want you to follow me, and here's what your life's going to look like. I'm gonna, this will be what you do. This will be who you marry. This will be what your family looks like. This will be what your financial situation is going to look like at these various points in your, in your life. Here's what old age is going to look like. And then you can kind of follow God with, this, like, with all the information that you want beforehand. A lot of times God says, just, I want you to follow me. And I want you to trust me. And I want you to trust me that I am good and that my will for your life is good. And I want you to walk uh, you know, not necessarily with a blind faith, but just with, with a humble faith that trusts that I'm your father and that I know what's good for you and that I will take care of you. So go from your country, your family, go to the land that I will show you. And then starting in verse 2, look, look at, how, look at the, the structure of these sentences in verse 2. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and dishonor who those who dishonor you. I will curse. And in you, it's implied, I will bless all of the families of, of the earth. Over and over, the, the acting agent, the subject of each sentence, starting in verse 2, is God. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's how I am going to accomplish my will through you. This is uh, what theologians call monergistic salvation kind of a big, a big word, it's a mouthful. But uh, monergistic salvation essentially just means that God saves sinners, right? Uh, sinners don't save themselves. Sinners don't help God to save them. Uh, God doesn't make sinners savable and then ask them to, to meet him in the middle. God saves sinners. And this, this uh, theological concept of God saving sinners monergistically... Uh, starts all the way back in Genesis. If you've, uh, if you've worked in the, mar- in the corporate marketplace the last few years, you've probably heard the word synergy. It's like a big buzzword, which basically means that uh, you know, it's like the, the sum, when we work together as a team, the sum, uh, you know, what we can accomplish is greater than the sum of what we would have accomplished individually. We're, us working together has a synergistic effect, right? So Tom has an idea, he bounces it off of Mary, uh, Mary gives him feedback, and the idea is improved, George weighs in, you know, because he did that at a previous job, and here's what he learned from that experience, Sally has a background in that particular field, so she has some, some relevance here, and then together, when they work synergistically, the end result is better, they get more done, they get a better product finished, because they were working together, helping one another, accounting for one another's shortcomings, and contributing together, which is all well and good. In fact, I think that the, the, the idea of synergism, I mean, that in a large sense, that's kind of what the corporate get worship gathering is. There's a reason why we gather together to worship together instead of worshiping individually alone in isolation because there's a synergistic effect where when we gather, we encourage one another and it kind of is better. So that's the way that maybe corporate worship works, has a synergistic effect, but that's not the way salvation works. God doesn't work synergistically with sinners to save them. Right? God doesn't tell Abraham, I am going to give you the opportunity to become a great nation. Or I am going to invite you to do your part along with me. I'm going to shoulder 50% of the burden and then leave the other 50% up to you. I'm going to help you to make your own name great and entrust that you will do the rest. Right? Because God helps those who help themselves or something like that. Like that. God doesn't say, he says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. 
and I will bless all of the families of the earth through you. That's how God called Abraham. That's how God calls sinners today. Right? God calls, God regenerates, God gives new life, God saves, God forgives, God empowers through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, God keeps, God preserves his people, God is the author and the perfecter of our faith, God is the one who accomplishes it, and God is the one who receives all the glory from it. We rest not in the the fruit of our own hands, the works of our own hands, rather we rest in what Christ has has accomplished. Not our, not our righteousness or our spirituality, but rather the character of God, the promises of God in the person and work of Christ. There's a quote by J.I. Packer. It's, a, it's a, a lengthy one. It's got a couple of slides, but it starts saying, there is really only one point to be made in the field of soteriology, and it's the point that God saves sinners. God, the triune Jehovah, Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons working together in sovereign wisdom, power, and love to achieve the salvation of a chosen people, the Father electing, the Son fulfilling, the Father's will by redeeming, the Spirit executing the purpose of the Father and Son by renewing. God saves, right? Saves meaning that he does everything first to last that is involved in bringing man from death and sin to life and glory, plans, achieves, communicates redemption, calls and keeps, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies. Let's go to the next slide, Jesse. Uh, and, then, and then sinners, uh, men as God finds them, guilty, vile, helpless, powerless, unable to lift a finger to do God's will or better uh, their spiritual lot. Next slide. God saves sinners, and the force of, his, of this confession may not be weakened, by dividing the achievement of salvation between God and man and making the decisive part man's own, or by soft-pedaling the sinner's inability so as to allow him to share in the praise of his salvation with his Savior. This is the only main point of Christian soteriology, that sinners do not save themselves in any sense at all, but salvation, first and last, whole and entire, past, present, and future, is of the Lord, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Is that my phone? I can't tell. It might be. If it is, maybe it'll just stop. We'll get, if, if it rings again, then we'll... Uh, oh, maybe it was... We'll see. If it rings again, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, take, we'll take a look at it. Anyways, all through Scripture, God is saying, right, I will bless you, Right, and I will ensure that all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. There's this monergistic God acting instead of human beings acting. And then the next thing that we see in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is this kind of trajectory of the blessing. God says, I will bless you, but not just that I will bless you, Abraham, but rather I will bless you so that the, all of the families of the earth, everyone in all the world will be blessed through you. God doesn't save Abraham so that Abraham you know, can, can have a safe, comfortable life where he, you know, enjoys all of the things that God has graciously given to him and, and kind of hoards them to himself and walls up within, within his own little place and just kind of gets, you know, fat and lazy and out of shape, right? God says, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. I'm going to bless you uh, so that you can leverage the blessings that you have for the sake of others and bless others on my behalf. Of course, as we read further through Scripture, 
what we see is that the primary way through which the world and the families of the world have been blessed through Abraham and have been blessed through the nation that would ultimately come from Abraham is through Christ. Right? One of the descendants of Abraham would be born, live a perfect life of perfect righteousness, and then die a sacrificial death in place of sinners, taking our sin on his shoulders so that we could be credited with his righteousness because he himself was imputed, had had our sin imputed to him, right? Jesus would bless the entire world by dying for their sins and offering them the gift of eternal life. And so Jesus is the one through whom the blessings that were given to Abraham would then be broadcast out to the entire world. So Genesis 12, 1 through 3, leave your family, leave your life, go where I show you, I will bless you, I will make you a great nation, I will bless all of the world, all the families of the earth through you. And then if we go to Genesis 15, which I think should be the, the next one here, uh, here's where we see these, these same promises reiterated, repeated, but then enshrined into a covenant. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Abram, Abraham, I use them interchangeably. His name's going to be changed to Abraham in chapter 17. Came to Abram in a vision and says, fear not, I'm your shield. Your reward will be very great. And Abraham is confused. He doesn't know how this is. How can I be uh, uh, the father of a great nation when I'm old and I don't have any kids, right? Oh Lord, what will you give me? For I am childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, right? You've given me no offspring. A member of my household will be, he says, my employee, essentially, is going to be who all my stuff gets left to because I don't have any kids. Abraham was 75. When, when God called Abraham in Genesis 12, Abraham was 75 and Sarah was 65. Uh, when they had their first child, their first biological child, Isaac, uh, that was 25 years later, Abraham was 100, Sarah was 90. And along the way, uh, they, they often kind of struggle with doubt as to whether or not God is going to accomplish what he said that he's going uh, to, to do. Verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram. This man shall not be your heir. Your own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, Look to the heaven, number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said, So shall your offspring be. Right? So, so uh, hang in there, Abram. Right? I realize that you're old, not getting any younger. I realize that Sarah is old, past childbearing years, and she's not getting any younger. But trust me, because I am going to accomplish it on your behalf. And then verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted, to it, he counted it to him as righteousness. This verse here, uh, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, might be the most important verse in the whole Bible. Uh, it, it, it's certainly a verse that kind of um, you know, much of the New Testament looks back on this verse, uh, is informed by this verse, uh, seeks to explain and understand and apply this verse. Much of, much of human history, the entire Reformation was kind of sp spawned out of this verse, that Abraham believed God and God credited him with righteousness because of his belief and his faith and his trust, as opposed to giving him, uh, you know, some sort of, some sort of wage that, would, that God would be obligated by virtue of his, uh, the result of his, his works. 
Right? So God says, uh, this is, is not because of works, it's not because of who you are, what you've done, it's because of my mercy, my promises, my faithfulness. Abraham believes God, trusts God, and this is kind of the, the prototypical example for saving faith for sinners uh, in the new covenant. There's a unilateral, one-way calling, uh, an offer of undeserved grace and unmerited favor, and then all that's left, like Abraham does, is not to work and earn it, but rather to receive it and believe it and, and trust in it. Abraham believed God and the Lord credited him. Right, if someone writes you a check for a million dollars, right, uh, in, order to, in, order to get, in order to cash the check, or, you know, being fiscally responsible, in order to put that check into an IRA, um, you don't have to... Uh, you, you don't have to go earn, like someone writes you a check for a million dollars. If you want that million dollars, you don't have to go earn it. You don't have to work and then, and then you know, receive the million dollars as, as a result of something that you did. All you have to do is uh, cash it. You have, to, you have to receive it, right? The check itself is worth nothing unless you sign the back, unless you kind of formally endorse it, sign the back of it, and you say, I am taking possession of this money, I want this money, and I'm declaring publicly to everyone that I have received this money, so I can't come back a week later and say, I haven't received it, where's my money? Right, I'm, I'm formally going on the record right now saying, I have received it. I didn't earn it, but I did have to receive it. That's exactly how salvation works, right? God gives grace, unmerited favor, undeserved, uh, you know, gift to his people. They don't have to earn it. In fact, it's insulting for them to try and earn it, but they do have to receive it, right? Through repentance and faith, you have to turn from your former way of life, turn to Jesus, trust in him, and receive, and kind of go on the record publicly as having received the grace that Jesus has offered to you. Verse 7. And he says to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So remember, so I, I, you know, I called Abraham, you were a Babylonian, you were an idolater. I called you out, I've made you the father of a nation, verse 8. But, but Abraham says, oh Lord, how am I to possess it? Verse 9, God says, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, uh, three years old, and a ram, three years old and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So God, Abraham says, show me a sign. How do I know that this is really going to, to happen? And God says, uh, get these animals. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to kind of uh, give you, we're going to have a covenant ceremony wherein I'm going to establish the terms of our relationship. Go get these animals and kill them and cut them in half. And if you look at uh, Jeremiah chapter 34, you can do that for homework. Uh, you can see that that's kind of uh, some more insight into this practice of cutting animals in half and then walking through them. Essentially what happens is when two people made a covenant, they would come together, they would shake one another. It's kind of like a handshake, but they'd shake each other's hands and then they would just lay out their respective uh, you know, stipulations of the covenant. This is what you're going to do. This is what I'm going to do. You promise you're going to do that for me. I promise that I'm going to do this for you. Neither of us are going to go back on our word. And then they would cut these animals in half and they would walk through them. And the implication was, if I go back on my word, if I don't do what I said and what I promised I'm going to do, then I, may, may I be like these animals we're walking through. May I be killed, slaughtered, cut in half if I don't keep my promise and abide by the terms of this covenant. So God says, we're going to establish a covenant. 
So Abraham gets the animals. Verse 10, he brought the animals, he cut them in half, laid each half over against the other. He didn't cut the birds in half. Leviticus says you're not supposed to cut birds in half. Um, And when the birds of prey came down, he drove them away. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. That's Egypt. And there will be servants there. Your, your offspring will be slaves in Egypt. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. Right? That's, that's the Exodus. That's what we, what we read in the book of Exodus. Your people are going to be enslaved by Egypt. They're going to build the pyramids. They're going to be mistreated and oppressed. I'm going to bring them out. I'm going to save my people. I'm going to judge Egypt. I'm going to bring them back here, plant them in the land that I promised you. Verse 15, as for you, Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. So don't, don't lose too much sleep over these things that are going to happen hundreds of years from now because you are going to have a, a good life. You're going to die an old man. You're going to be happy. Everything's going to be fine verse 16, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Amorites were a people uh, there in the land of Canaan. And so God says, God says, I've got this plan to make your people into a great nation, but it's not going to all happen right away. It's going to happen. There's going to be kind of a long, windy road wherein your people are going to go, you know, I have things I want to teach your people, right? I want to teach, teach your descendants about my covenant and my character and my faithfulness. I have things that I need to accomplish in Egypt. Namely, I need to bring judgment against them for their sin. Pharaoh is this kind of, you know, thinks he's a god, and he thinks that he speaks on behalf of God, and he acts like a god, and he calls himself a god, and and I need to bring judgment on Pharaoh and Egypt because of their sin, and uh, partly because uh, I need to bring judgment on the Amorites, the people here in Canaan that are, that, but but their sin is not yet, not yet complete. There's this idea that God uh, uh, lets people, when people rebel against God and throw themselves into sin, God does not always judge them right away at that exact moment. Sometimes God lets sin run its course. He lets sinners kind of continue rebelling against God and running against God. God judges people uh, in his perfect timing as he uh, sees fit. So I'm patiently waiting and giving the Amorites time, letting it happen, and at some point in the future, I will decide that enough is enough and I will bring judgment against them before or because of their, their sin. Right, so, so you, Abraham, you'll get the nation that I've promised you. They'll learn the lessons that I intend for them to learn. Egypt will receive the judgment that is right for their sin. The Amorites will receive the judgment that is right for their sin. And I'm going to accomplish it. It's like Seinfeld, right? When there's like, there's like four different storylines, and then they all look like they're happening independently, but then by the end of the episode, they all are kind of woven together, and it's one big story that they were all interconnected. God says, I'm doing something with the Amorites, I'm doing something with the Egyptians, I'm doing something with you, doing something with Isaac, something with Jacob, something with their son, something with your people, and I'm going to accomplish all of it together uh, as I see fit. And then in verse 17, it says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, I will give your offspring this land. And he kind of spells out uh, specifically where the land is. And you'll notice that, that uh, so, so this, this fire pot and this, smoking, this flaming torch is, is meant to symbolize the presence of God. God is often kind of resembled by, by fire. 
And so this represents God, and God doesn't say, Abraham, I want you to pass through these two animals first, and then I will pass through after you, right? God puts Abraham to sleep, and then God shows up, and God's presence walks through. It's as if God is saying, this is my covenant, my faithfulness to my covenant is contingent upon me and my character. My faithfulness is not conditioned upon your faithfulness to your end of the covenant. My faithfulness to my end of the covenant is conditioned upon my steadfastness and my immutability and my unchangeability. I am God regardless of who you are and what you do. I am good regardless of who you are and what you do. My, my merciful uh, you know, character and my kindness will never be changed. I am going to be faithful to this covenant forever, for eternity, period. That's how God uh, dealt with Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. That's how God deals with sinners when he saves them through, through Christ. There's a, a sovereign grace, unilateral, monergistic salvation where God Uh, God calls his people and he saves his people. They respond in faith, but ultimately God's promises rest on his character and not on our performance. So chapter 12, we see the the initial seedlings of these promises. Chapter 15, we see them reiterated and enshrined into a covenant. And then in chapter 17, we see that covenant reiterated, but also the, the, the ritual of circumcision is added on. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me, be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. And Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall you be called Abram, which means exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham, the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, plural. Kings, plural, shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you, your offspring throughout their generations, an everlasting covenant to be, uh, to, to be God and to you and your offspring forever. And I will give to you and your offspring the land of your sojournings, the land of Canaan, and everlasting possession. So, so verses 1 through 8 is kind of reiterating this promise of, uh, of, of a nation of offspring, which requires reproduction and a a healthy reproductive organ. And then in verse 9, God institutes the rite of of, uh, circumcision, which is seemingly meant to, you know, it's it's meant to just reiterate, you have to trust me. You have to to trust me. Like, I just promised that I was going to give you descendants, and now I'm going to, to, you know, require that you do something that that means that you trust me to, to give you descendants. Right? You, don't, you don't get to rely on yourself. And God said to Abraham, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you for generations. This is my covenant. You shall keep between me and your offspring. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Verse 11, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Verse 12, he who is eight days old shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house... So that's, that's kind of genetically Israelite, or bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. My covenant will be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people because he has broken my covenant. So God says, Uh, My promise to be faithful to you and your promise to be faithful to me are going to be uh, forever symbolized 
by this uh, rite of circumcision, your children, your household, right? And the, the sign is essentially saying, if you break your covenant with me, if you are unfaithful to me, if you uh, break my word, break my laws, break my commandments, worship other gods, then you are to be cut off from your people. Anyone, anyone within the nation who, who breaks their covenant, walks away from God, that person is to be cut off and removed, expelled from the covenant community. The ritual is a, is a symbol of your covenant with God that says that God is faithful, God has been faithful to us, and we promise that we are going to be faithful to him in response. So in the covenant, God calls Abraham to leave his home, leave his life, go to a new land. God promises to give Abraham a nation and bless him, and he promises to bless the entire world through Abraham. And that is exactly what we remember when we celebrate communion. Right? We remember uh, how God has fulfilled the promises that he made to Abraham through Christ. We remember how Jesus is the true and better Abraham who left his home, left that which is familiar, ventured into an unknown land for the sake of his people so that he could save them and build a new nation, a new family of believers through him. We remember that Jesus died for us. We remember that his body was broken, his blood was shed, so that we could receive the benefits and the blessings that were promised to Abraham in God's covenant with him. And we remember how God calls us to respond by turning from our sin and by trusting in Christ. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're, if you're a Christian, we invite you to join us at the table. Jason's going to come up, play, play a song. During the song, we just invite you to take a moment, pray, confess your sin, receive the grace of God, enjoy it, and then come up, grab an individually packaged uh, you know, thing of, uh, of the elements and celebrate the truth of the gospel by eating and drinking together as, uh, as a family. If you're not a Christian, we ask you not to take communion because the Bible teaches against it. Instead, instead of taking communion, we would invite you to take Christ. We invite you to receive the Savior that was promised to Abraham, receive the salvation that he offers freely to you so that you can be forgiven and reconciled to the God who created you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you for who Jesus is and for what he has done for us. And Lord, we pray that we could follow in the steps of our father Abraham. We could turn from our sin, trust in you. We thank you for your sovereign grace that you called us out of our sin and our folly. We pray that we could follow you and trust you even when we don't know exactly where we're going. And we pray, Lord, that we could enjoy your grace and your favor and your blessing. And as we do, we pray that we could be a blessing to those around us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.